Legally Speaking, coming up in just a moment with Michael Mulligan standing by first. Here's Premier John Horgan earlier this week. That means holding rule breakers accountable. That means ensuring that the fines that we levy are collected. Certainly everyone has a right to appeal. Everyone has a right to due process. But once that due process has been finalized, if you do not pay the fines, we will send collections after you. This is serious. This is not a lark. This is not something we do lightly. Premier John Horgan, Michael Mulligan, making those remarks earlier this week. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Sending collections after me. That sounds quite I- ominous. It's the sort of thing I might call a lawyer over. What is the story on the legalities of all that? Sure. Uh, well, uh, it certainly is a uh, tough-sounding speech, so maybe it will encourage people to put that mask on when they should. Uh, but the, the reality of sending something off to collections is maybe not quite as ominous as the uh, speech would have suggested. Um, that process of trying to collect money from people with a collection agency uh, essentially involves a collection agency repeatedly phoning somebody and trying to harass them into paying a debt. Um, one thing people should be aware of, I think it's general consumer advice, that would apply to this too. There's actually a provision in the British Columbia uh, Business Practices and Consumer Protection Act, Section 116, Sub 4, as it happens, whereby if you're getting harassing phone calls from a collection agency, uh, you can fill out a form, uh, send it to the collection agency, uh, and that uh, prohibits the collection agency from continuing to phone you. They are then only permitted to send you letters. Uh, and it's, uh, of course, a little harder to harass somebody by letter than it might be uh, phoning them repeatedly. So, Uh, Well, I hope that encourages compliance. It seems to me that's a pretty weak sauce in terms of uh, trying to uh, collect uh, debts from people for uh, fines. I'd be uh, uh, very interested to hear what percentage they actually succeed in collecting by that effort. Now, with that being said, it seems to me there'd be a much more effective way to uh, ensure compliance, Mm -hmm. Um, and that is because starting tomorrow, Uh, There is a process in place to allow people to apply for payments that are supposed to be COVID uh, relief payments from the provincial government with the idea of sending people out $1,000 payments. Yes. Uh, You, of course, have no right to receive $1,000 from the government. Uh, The legislature is currently sitting. It seems to me if anyone's listening and thinking this through, uh, perhaps uh, one of the criteria you would want to add to the uh, application process to get your $1,000 from the provincial government would be that you're not uh, alleged to have breached COVID-19 safety measures under the uh, the uh, health legislation. Why in the world are we sending a $1,000 check uh, to somebody uh, who's believed to have uh, endangered other people for the in the very pandemic that we'd be sending the thousand dollars to uh, for heaven's sakes amend the legislation and don't send the thousand uh, dollars out to somebody in that uh, position uh, and then try to have a debt collection agency chase them around to get some portion of it back and if you wish to have a uh, as there should be some due process protection uh, if the person wishes to receive their gratuitous payment of a thousand dollars give them some opportunity to establish that they were in compliance with the uh, health orders. Uh, And uh, if so, that's fine. We'll send you that uh, check that you otherwise had no particular right to. But sending people uh, who are uh, anti-maskers and holding dangerous uh, gatherings uh, checks uh, and then trying to uh, have a collection agency phone them to get some portion of that back 
seems to me like a uh, terrible mistake, uh, and we have a uh, opportunity to avoid doing that. The legislature is currently sitting, and the applications for checks are scheduled to go out tomorrow. So hmm. let's hope somebody's listening, uh, and uh, doesn't uh, we don't uh, carry on with what's currently planned. I must say, I like your argument. The gratuitous nature of the payments, as well as there being no rational attachment to 2020 pandemic income, instead relying on 2019 tax filings, I think uh, cements the the um, understanding that these payments really are just gratuitous for no reason rationally connected to the present uh, uh, pandemic. So yeah, why, why not hold them back? I like that idea, Michael. Sure. I mean, it seems to me that the justification for this is to provide some relief to people who are uh, in a difficult time as a result of the uh, COVID-19 and uh, sending that money out to people that are hosting large house parties or engaged in uh, gatherings that endanger everyone or refusing to wear a mask in public just seems to me like an unnecessary outrage. There's time to stop that. Uh, And you would think that would be uh, an incentive for people to, if they want that kind of government help, stop engaging in behavior that's putting everyone else at risk. Eminently reasonable, as always. What else is on the docket today? Uh, Well, I I thought there was a uh, what I took to be a a heartwarming story about uh, how we uh, generally operate in British Columbia. Uh, And that came in the uh, form, and I should say, you know, this is a good time for heartwarming stories, because we're in 2020 and right before Christmas. Yes. Uh, But this particular one came in the form of the uh, the judicial recount and the uh, reasons for judgment uh, in that out of the uh, West Vancouver Sea to Sky Electoral District. Uh, that was a place where there was a very tight result in the pr- last uh, provincial election. Uh, following the, uh, fi- the uh, initial uh, count, the Liberal uh, uh, candidate there was ahead by 41 votes in front of the Green candidate, 9,216 votes to 9,175 votes, so very tight. And so that precipitated a judicial recount of those votes. Um, uh, And there was a slight uh, change after that. I must say I enjoyed reading the description of the various things people had done to ballots that uh, created some controversy. Um, You recall previously we discussed some of the rules include things like you can't put marks on ballots that would identify yourself and you've got to clearly identify the person you're voting for. One person wrote Donald Trump next to a candidate's name. That's all they put on the ballot. Uh, The candidate who had had Donald Trump written next to their name urged that that ballot be accepted as a vote for them. The judge judge didn't buy that. Um, Some other person uh, uh, drew what appeared to be a swastika next to a a certain candidate. Uh, And so, of course, there was some uh, argument about, well, does that mean they like that candidate? <laughs> or are they a, negatively branding that candidate? Is, is that a repudiation of the candidate? Hard to know. Uh, the judge did accept that one, found that it was. It could be argued that that was some form of a cross. Um, there were other various things people did. Some people tried ranking people with numbers. That, that didn't work out. Uh, there was some uh, someone else, I think there's more than one, where a person had uh, uh, written in and won those write-in ballots. Uh, yes. They'd written in... Uh, a candidate who wasn't a candidate in the writing, writing and then crossed it out and initialed it, kind of like they were initialing a change in a check. <laughs> Not a crazy thing, but you've now kind of initialed your ballot. Yeah, so you can identify you it, yeah. And there were a few of those. That, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't a unique idea. Uh, and there was some assessment made of those in terms of whether that was an identifying mark or whether it uh, was just a, a little uh, message or so a little uh, uh, unidentifiable squiggle. 
the net result uh, was a minor change in the uh, uh, vote count. By the end of the judicial recount, the lead of the uh, Liberal candidate there had increased from 41 votes to 60 votes, which was great. It didn't change the outcome, a small change. But this gets me to the heartwarming part. <laughs> and the heartwarming part comes in, I think, the conclusion uh, that the judge set out uh, in the reasons and said, as this uh, report and reasons are written, and as the recount was conducted, the outgoing president of the United States brandishing all caps tweets rather than evidence falsely claimed that his electoral loss was due to unsubstantiated fraud. He was ignorant or perhaps more likely fully conscious of the corrosion his allegations and a marked departure from presidential norms would inflict on the constitutional underpinnings of that beacon of democracy. It was a privilege to preside over the recount and witness the process under which every last ballot was meticulously and carefully recounted by elections BC and scrutineers from both parties. To this judicial witness, the process confirmed the integrity and strength of our democratic process. It appears that the other participants in and witnesses to the judicial recount shared this view. Soon after the recount results, uh, one of the candidates publicly congratulated the other via media release and tweet, a gesture not only gracious, but fortifying for our democratic norms. When the court read out the results, the entire room, Green Party and Liberal Party volunteers alike, some of whom had hand-counted ballots over two days, spontaneously erupted into applause. So I thought that was just a heartwarming uh, contrast of how we are conducting things in British Columbia as opposed to what you're probably seeing uh, the display in the nightly news uh, play out uh, in the United States. Indeed. In fact, yeah. I think it's never been more clear that the functioning of democracy itself relies on the ability of participants to, when necessary, be good losers and gracious losers because there always ha does have to be at least one loser in any electoral process. That's true. Happily, of course, the uh, the winner here uh, didn't win as a result of having Donald Trump written next to their name or being the recipient of the swastika. <laughs> I'm not sure that would have been worth it. I, uh, but, uh, <laughs> I will not comment. Yeah. Let's cool. take a break here at CFAX 1070. Um, I, I always love these stories. and I know Michael has uh, told us in the past how he's taken part in one of these uh, recount type procedures where a judge as well as lawyers will carefully review any ballots that are called into question. And I am so thankful that we have established processes like that here in British Columbia, here in Canada, upon which all sides can rely and with uh, confidence say, yes, there is a clear winner. This is the will of the people. This is what we are doing. That's a precious thing. We need to make sure we don't risk losing that here as well. Quick break. We're back in a moment. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. What's next on the agenda, Michael? Well, I think the next one is a uh, cautionary tale out of the Court of Appeal uh, that involves uh, a real estate transaction gone wrong. And I, I think there's a uh, a uh, couple of good uh, things people should be aware of here if they're buying or selling uh, a home, right? Yes. A, lot of, a lot of people doing that in the current environment. Um, so the the particular case involved uh, a family who listed a home for sale, uh, and the person agreed to purchase it, uh, and they provided a deposit of $50,000. Uh, for financial reasons, the person who agreed to purchase it wasn't able to complete the transaction, um, and so they breached the agreement. The uh, home sellers uh, then relisted the home for sale promptly and were able to sell it, but for less money than uh, the original purchaser had agreed to pay. Uh, and so that resulted in the, the seller 
the home seller, suing the person who had originally agreed to purchase it for the difference between what they uh, had agreed to buy the home for and what they wound up selling it for. It was $100,000 less. Mm. And all of that is uh, fair enough. That's kind of how it works. If you enter into an agreement like that to purchase something and you don't follow through uh, and the person winds up losing money, you could be on the hook for the difference. So yes. that's important to know. Don't go and uh, agree to buy something if you're not confident you're going to be able to, to complete the deal. But this is the wrinkle, and I think this is something people should be aware of. Uh, this case involved a was described as the standard form listing agreement, the kind of thing that would be brought out by a real estate agent and you'd be asked to sign if you were selling your home. And the standard form listing agreement, one of the things that it would deal with, one of its primary topics, is the payment of commission to the real estate agent who's selling your home. Um, and that commission is usually shared between the two agents, the one who's selling it and the person who's acting for the purchaser. But here's the thing. The, the way that standard form agreement uh, is drawn up is that that uh, real estate commission becomes payable upon the real estate agent uh, having somebody enter into a binding contract to purchase the home, not actually completing and purchasing the home. Hmm. What that means um, is that in a scenario like this, where uh, the person agrees to buy the home, provides a deposit, in this case of $50,000, and then the person doesn't follow through and complete it, you're still on the hook to pay the real estate agent their commission. And in this case, I think it was slightly more than what the deposit was. So while you're the seller of your home, you might think, great, that old person's paid a deposit. I guess I'll have some protection if the person doesn't follow through. You may find that, in fact, you have none because all of that money and more may be due to your real estate agent, even though the contract didn't complete. Uh, and so... The piece of consumer advice is that if you're selling your home, you might want to consider not signing the, quote, standard form listing agreement that a real estate agent would ask you to sign. You might want to have that change so that the commission is only payable if the person actually follows through and buys your house, yes. not just agreed to buy your house and then doesn't. Um, now, here, because this thing wound up in litigation after the house sold for less, uh, the people who sold it were suing and asking for, amongst other things, the real estate commission saying, hey, we have to pay it twice. We have to pay it again when we sold the house a second time because the real estate agents do a commission on that occasion. Yes. They're saying, hey, we should get both commissions. Um, and indeed, the court said generally that is true, right? The idea where there's a breach of a contract like that is you should uh, order an amount of money paid to put the person back in the position they would have been in but for the contract being breached. So fair enough, you get both commissions from the um, person who breached the contract. But here, it turned out there was actually no evidence that they had paid the first commission. Uh, and that could be either because they didn't pay the first commission, or it could be because the real estate agent said, well, look, uh, you know, I, I won't insist upon that. Uh, you know, otherwise you're out another $50,000 in commission for selling this house twice. Uh, that's unclear. But so in this case, the person who breached the contract wasn't on the hook for both commissions because there just wasn't evidence that despite what the contract said, the sellers actually paid it on the first occasion. Uh, but if you want to protect yourself selling your home, you might think twice about whether you want to sign the standard form agreement, which would make you responsible for paying that commission, even when the house doesn't actually get sold. There was just an agreement to uh, buy the house, which falls through. 
Um, so think about that if you're uh, planning to sell your house in the current uh, hot market. Absolutely. A new court direction I'm reading here to provide preferred pronouns in the course of introductions. And this, of course, uh, makes me remember previous conversations we have had. Most of us uh, see court for the first time in Canada through American television networks, where it's customary to refer to the presiding judge as your honor. I've been told by litigators here in Canada that my lord or my lady is used much more commonly, at least in some courts. Remind us of how all that works. Yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of all over the map on that front. Uh, and some of those uh, disparities in what we're doing, I think uh, uh, how we're doing it should be perhaps reconsidered in light of the practice directive that came out the other day. So the practice directive that came out, and there were two of them, it was uh, they were the same essentially. One was from the B- British Columbia Provincial Court, uh, another was from the British Columbia Supreme Court. Uh, and the practice directives uh, both indicate that uh, now at the beginning of any proceeding, um, uh, when people are being introduced, uh, the uh, lawyer doing the introducing uh, is required to uh, advise what the person's preferred uh, pronoun would be, Mr. Miss, Mix, uh, Counsel Jones, whatever it might be, um, and so that the uh, court and others would be able to use whatever the uh, person prefers. Um, and so I think that's a, a good idea. Um, it, it's also, of course, uh, it's sort of sensitive to people's uh, desire to have, use their preferred pronoun, uh, it also has some good practical benefits as we're doing many more uh, virtual proceedings where it could be completely unknown who the judge is speaking to and wanting to make sure that they address the person uh, as they prefer to be addressed. But it, it caused me to reflect upon the issue of how we address judges. Uh, and how judges are addressed depends on the level of court. And in British Columbia, in provincial courts, sort of the lower level court in British Columbia, uh, the judges are all referred to as your honor, right? Which is, of course, gender neutral. Yes. Uh, in Supreme, in the British Columbia Supreme Court, uh, and in the British Columbia Court of Appeal, however, uh, we continue to use my lord and my lady. Um, and that, of course, is gender specific. Yes. Uh, and, the uh, the Supreme Court of Canada, by the way, has now gone to, uh, directing people to use justice rather than my lord and my lady. Now, that's actually interesting because it's been in the British Columbia Supreme Court. There was some controversy about that. It was about 15 years or so ago, and I recall I was in the middle of a, a trial that was going on for several weeks mm-hmm. uh, with now retired Justice Dorgan from British from uh, Victoria. Uh, and there was a, at the time we started out with Milady, uh, then there was a, a move afoot to move to Your Honor. Right? Some of the judges in the Supreme Court thought. That would be better to have everyone use a gender-neutral term, maybe a little less archaic than my lord and my lady. Uh, and so she decided, okay, I'm going to please use your honor. So great, we spent a week of your honor in Supreme Court. And then a practice directive came out from on high telling uh, the judges of the B.C. Supreme Court, I guess it would have been from the uh, uh, Chief Justice, nope, back to my lord and my lady. So she <laughs> came in on week three, okay, I guess I'm back to my lady. And so that's what we've been doing uh, since then. Hmm. And, and I should say, in the same, for the same reason uh, why this practice directive that came out yesterday, I think, was a good idea so that people would be able to have their preferred pronoun, it seems to be uh, either uh, we should uh, have the same uh, uh, pronouncement by the uh, judge in terms of what they would prefer if we're going to continue to use my lord and my lady, it seems to me they should advise which of those they would prefer to use, uh, or 
the alternative to that would be to adopt something neutral, Your Honor, right, mm, in, yes. in the Supreme Court as well. I can say is there's another, <laughs> only half jokingly, it can become more complicated in the uh, British Columbia Court of Appeal, where you have multiple judges. Oh yes, and you, you address have, them all at once, right? You would have three or five. Uh, they also sit in order uh, of seniority with the senior person in the middle, mm-hmm. and the proper order of address would be to address them in order of seniority. And so, if of course, if all the judges were female, it could just be miladies this or that, or milords such and such, right? Mm-hmm. But if you had a uh, senior female judge, and then a male judge, and then a female uh, judge in order of seniority would be milady, milord, milady. <laughs> Right, yes. or in the most ridiculous, if you had five and it was alternating back and forth, you could have Malord, Malady, Malord, Malady, Malord. <laughs> what happens if you get it wrong? Yeah, that's why you'd be certainly a frown. Somebody's going to realize <laughs> I, I'm out in the pecking order. I, I must say, some of those things also uh, caused me to sort of reflect upon. No matter what station somebody winds up uh, at in life, right? You, you've uh, you know you've had a, a good career. You've been uh, <laughs> eventually appointed to the uh, Court of Appeal. Uh, there you are after many years, senior person, and then you realize, oh, I'm the junior winger. <laughs> right? There's always a bigger first. fish. Yes. There's always a bigger fish. I guess that's the message there. But I, I think I, I would suggest, I mean, one alternative would be to expand this practice directive to uh, ensure that the uh, judges uh, in Supreme Court and in the Court of Appeal uh, at the beginning of each proceeding uh, announce themselves and advise which uh, uh, mode of address they would prefer. Uh, that seems like it would be an appropriate uh, thing to do in light of the uh, uh, these directives that came out yesterday. Or I think even better, why don't we just go with your honor everywhere? Um, right? Uh, surely that's a, uh, a sufficient uh, a sufficient mode of address, and that avoids the need to uh, have somebody identify uh, which uh, of those uh, modes they would like as a judge. Interesting. As always, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, here on CFAX 1070. Michael, thank you so much. Until next week. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Have a great week. You too. Bye now.